This is episode 255 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Shipwrecks with Charles Beaker. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am really pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. Charles D. Beaker is with us. So, Charlie, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. I'm going to introduce you. Charles Beaker serves as the director for Indiana University Center for Underwater Science and Academic Diving Program. He's a registered professional archaeologist and PADI master instructor who has been teaching recreational and scientific diving classes for over 40 years. Professor Beaker served as a member of the Federal Archaeological Working Committee for the 1988 Abandoned Shipwrecked Act and was appointed to the Marine Protected Areas Federal Advisory Committee in 2005. He has assisted in establishing underwater parks and preserves across the United States and Caribbean, using a model of multidisciplinary scientific investigations of the submerged cultural and biological resources. So yeah, really excited to talk today about underwater exploration and diving. And then of course, we've had some recent events this year too that have brought this kind of work uh, into more of the public eye. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. And I guess I have to say with 40 years of uh, being an instructor for uh, diving agencies and working as a professor at Indiana University, I've seen lots of uh, new news over the 40 years. So there's currently things right now, but there's been a long history about our underwater exploration, our use of scuba, uh, the various discoveries over the years. But I'm certainly pleased to be here today to talk to you about what we're currently doing. Yeah, it seems like there's always news, I guess, uh, in, in your line of work. So let's start out by talking about Indiana University Center for Underwater Science, an uh, interesting name. And so can you tell us a little bit about how the center got started and what its mission is and maybe some of the initiatives that it's involved with? Yeah, um, years ago, I worked with uh, PADI Professional Association of Diving Instructors to do a survey of university programs. And this was back in the 80s, 84. And we found that most academic diving programs were in departments of physical education, which is where I was at that time. Uh, you know, you've got compressors, you've got tanks, you've got equipment, you do training. Uh, we like to laugh at my university every year when my freshmen, sophomores come in. I, I ask them, was, uh, was billiards and badminton and volleyball full? So you're in my scuba class or what's going on here exactly? But the answer is that we were teaching scuba here at Indiana University uh, since 1963, one of the oldest training programs in the country. Uh, scuba kind of coming to the United States in the uh, late 50s and then training organizations in the mid 60s. So with that in mind, there's scuba. Now, 
I got the Center for Underwater Science involved by being a full-time faculty member starting 1984, uh, 1992, looking for a way to take scuba as a tool to go underwater and do some kind of research. So still today, we have the center uh, that does the research arm at the university for underwater explorations, the archaeology, the biology, the coral studies, and so on. And then we have the academic diving, which does the training of the blowing the bubbles and the skills and clearing your mask and so on to be a safe person underwater. Mm-hmm. So that's really how they evolved. And there's two separate programs. I happen to be the founding director for one and the second director for the other. And uh, we're very pleased that we can offer this opportunity for our university students and get our faculty also involved in what we like to call meaningful research opportunities. Mm-hmm. I hadn't realized that until you explained it. Yeah, there are kind of two things going on there, the diving and then also the research that you do while you're down there. So yeah, kind of uh, almost two birds with one stone, you might say. Yeah. I'm from Indiana. I'm from Bloomington. I'm a local And so I was thinking that Indiana isn't really the first place that would come to mind for me as a likely spot for underwater science. Uh, But I was curious if there are any interesting areas in the state that you explore. Well, you know, with our new president at the university, one of the three pillars we're working on is in-state collaborations and benefits to the state from the university perspective. And I'm very pleased to indicate that uh, we've signed an agreement with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. Oh, nice. uh, To work in our Great Lakes. Uh, You know, uh, many years ago, put a proposal in to talk about the maritime history of Indiana. And one of the reviewers wrote back and said, well, there is no maritime heritage in Indiana. (laughs) And of course, that's a real fallacy. I see. We might have the shortest amount of lakeshore being just over 40 miles, but we have uh, in excess of 50 historic ships in our waters. Only 14 have really been surveyed, but most recently we've uh, convinced the state of Indiana and put successful nomination to uh, make our second shipwreck nature preserve. So we have two sites in the Great Lakes that are shipwrecked nature preserves, and that's different than the 296 other nature preserves in the state. Uh, But these sites are are relatively shallow, accessible to beginning divers. Uh, We've got buoys and markers on them, historic plaques, interpretive materials we're developing to really recognize that there are historic shipwrecks, uh, one of them on the National Register of Historic Places, and they're available for visitors to go do beginning dives in the Great Lakes. That's really amazing. I had no idea. Can you tell us about the first one? Where is that shipwreck from? Well, the two shipwrecks are somewhat related in that they are... uh, were both in the end of their lives used for uh, pulling sand up off the bottom of the Great Lakes, uh, oh, okay. re- reclamation for the what now is Indiana Dunes National Park and Indiana Dunes State Park. So the first shipwreck nature preserve, uh, we surveyed it in 2000 and recommended prior to my work, an archaeologist for the state, Gary Ellis, surveyed it in 1984 to 86. We both concurred it should be a park or a preserve. So in Indiana, it was designated as a nature preserve in 2012. It's right out in front of the pavilion at Indiana Dune State Park. So literally, you can sit at the pavilion, look out on the water, see the buoys. You can look on the beach, and there's the propeller off the site, interpretive panels. So you don't have to go visit it to appreciate the, uh, the significance of the site. 
The second one uh, is the Muskegon, which uh, I like to call it the Peerless because it launched in 1872 as the Peerless. Uh, it was one of the finest, described the finest uh, passenger ferry boats in the Great Lakes at its time. Oh. A wooden hulled vessel with, of course, a propeller and steam driven uh, engine. But it, uh, as it got older, uh, 30 some years of running from Chicago up into Duluth, uh, carrying passengers and cargoes, eventually it, it sank. Uh -huh. uh, and they raised it after four days, so fairly quick. But now you got a passenger ferry boat with the ballrooms, the various estate rooms, and so on. And they just couldn't justify fixing it back up for a passenger ferry boat. But it did become a gambling boat. For a short period, but even that didn't work out after a few months. So it got converted to be uh, just a, a barge to carry the sand equipment. And ultimately, it burned in Michigan City right in front of the historic lighthouse, the old lighthouse museum, towed out and was sunk about a mile out from Michigan City. So those two, that's off of Mount Baldy. So those two are readily noted uh, from the beaches. They're both less than 30 feet of water. They both represent technology of the Great Lakes, and they're both our historic shipwrecks in Indiana. Isn't it amazing the stories that there are for these things? It's like each one is its own adventure tale or something. Well, it is. And, you know, kind of uh, completing that thought of maritime heritage of the state of Indiana, you know, we have a lock system here that virtually bankrupt the state in 1832, oh. uh, one of which is still now a state park. We've got the Ohio River uh, with river boats on the Ohio. Uh, one that we're interested in is the Alice Dean, which was captured by Henry Morgan during the Civil War to cross over from Kentucky to Indiana uh, and ultimately set a fire and drifted and sank. And we've got the location information are interested in working on it. So recognizing the value of these sites is uh is a mission for us at the university, but also the not just the value for what we think as archaeologists, but the public uh, value, the sustainable use of these sites, the idea that they are our resources, and as such, they should be managed, they should be studied, they should be promoted, and they should be accessible in these particular cases. Yeah, it's so interesting to see the evolution of thinking about historic locations. You know, I think we're getting better at that as a species, I guess, or whatever we are. But yeah, it's so interesting that so many things are perceived as as junk or trash or and then eventually someone realizes, well, well, actually, you know, there's quite a lot of value and interest in this. And that that evolution of thinking is is very interesting to me. Well, I think, you know, kind of to add to that thought, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a diver. I started diving in nineteen sixty-three became an instructor in 1974, uh, worked full-time at the university since 1984. So I've been at this for a long time, but when we first started diving when I was a young kid, uh, we went out to look at wrecks because wrecks were wrecks, like automobile wreck. We wanted to look for a brass porthole and how to shine it up and any trinkets we could find. And, you know, our diving magazines talked about how do you restore a brass porthole. So that's what we went for. Mm -hmm. Now, over the years, uh, this has changed and we're, we, IU and myself have really worked to help make these changes, we hope, uh, that we've gone from wrecks to at least shipwrecks. And then from shipwrecks, we've gone to submerged cultural resources. With IU's involvement, we work on these parks we've developed in California, Florida, and the Caribbean. And we talk about submerged cultural and biological resources, mm -hmm. thus living museums in the sea 
And all my colleagues today, we talk about as archaeologists now, maritime landscapes. And Indiana certainly has a maritime landscape, as does Florida, as does California, as does the Caribbean sites. So that's what we try and promote is how, what's the context of these sites in a much broader perspective than just the, uh, the shipwreck itself. Yeah, that's what we see, right, is value now in, in these things uh, from an archaeological standpoint, anthropological, or just history, right, appreciation for the history of something. Well, I do the same thing when I discuss this with my students to try and get them involved. They come and take a beginning scuba class, and I'll say, well, what's your major exactly? And they'll say, well, I'm a, a biology major. And I go, oh, well, gosh, we could talk about the biology of shipwrecks. Let's do that. Well, I'm a, a business major. Well, we can certainly talk about the business of diving, the business of making a park and the sustainability of it and what kind of economic income comes in. Uh, you know, I'm a journalism major. Well, gosh, let's talk about some articles and so on. But that's really the magic that we've done. We're not trying to take everybody that comes to Indiana University and turn them into a scuba instructor. Mm -hmm. uh, we're trying to take them just to use scuba in whatever area, then getting involved with us to go do some research to help establish these parks or preserves in the Caribbean or California or Florida uh, or now Indiana. You know, we've got these projects that they try and apply for and get accepted on. And then we have a, a, a an area for degrees that we don't, again, try and make you go where I am in the School of Public Health or I'm adjunct in anthropology, being an archaeology anthro major. Instead, we say, why don't you take our underwater resource management certificate? Mm. More than a minor, less than a major. But now you can use that in your own discipline mm -hmm. and talk about working on these resources that we are working on. And it's very successful uh, to entice people and they can see the value added by their own participation. Oh, that's really neat. That's a way it flows into all different areas of education. Yeah, it's really interesting, as you say, multidisciplinary and, and cross fields. Okay, so you were recently in the news talking about a Colombian shipwreck. And can you bring us up to speed on what that is and what issues are in play there? Yeah, you know, we, we know that you know, after colonization of the Americas, uh, for good or for bad, the colonization included uh, going into Central America, South America, the, the Spanish picking up the precious metals. Some were remelted into other objects. Others were, were as the indigenous peoples had them. But this went on for about 250 years. Uh, I happen to work on Columbus sites and also Taino sites in the first contact of Hispaniola. But moving ahead now in 1708, uh, the San Jose was has been known because of the manifest for almost 40 years. People knew it existed. They knew about where it sank. Uh, and it was listed as the largest manifested cargo carrying vessel of its time. Oh. In today's numbers, they're talking, you know, $20 billion of goods on board this ship. Oh, my goodness. My concern is that, you know, we don't want to talk about the treasure, the cargo. We want to talk about the historic significance and what it means, recognizing, though, that there's cargo on board. Yeah. So at any rate, a long story, a little shorter. Um, uh, 2014, I'm working in Dominican Republic, and I was approached about having a delegation from Colombia come see what we're doing in that country, dealing with treasure hunters and the rules and regulations, making underwater parks on certain sites, doing museum exhibits. Uh, and they sent the delegation over, uh, six people from Colombia. Obviously, they were very astute on the on the issues, and we didn't really 
cat and mouse it much. I mean, I knew they knew, and I knew that the San Jose has been discovered. Uh, and they were asking, you know, what were my records? How'd we work in Dominican Republic? How'd we work in Florida? And how, how would this work for them on this site representing the government? So with all that in mind, shoot through to today, and I'm hoping they're taking some of my recommendations, but they're pretty obvious to those of us in the field. Uh, the San Jose now has been publicly announced. It's, it's uh, discovered. It's going to courts over whether the Salvors that think they found an American company in the 80s is going to get a claim. It's also under a, a claim by Spain uh, for their Spanish ship. And my advice to Colombia was, and still is, it's in your territorial waters. Mm -hmm. It's your shipwreck. Uh, Spain has no more claim to it than uh, Peru would have for the goods that are on board. So make sure that the, the, the real thing you've got to do is not sell it. You cannot sell the objects that really crosses the boundary. But as long as you talk about the things being brought up, going into museum exhibits and making money on entrance fees, uh, making money on TV documentaries, uh, loan of exhibits that could travel an exhibit. And I said, you could send it to Spain if they want, you know, for long-term loan even. Mm -hmm. But if you have indigenous objects, my recommendation was, if you can identify that these objects came from Mexico or Peru, I would certainly donate those back to expatriate them to the proper country. Uh, so those are my recommendations, and I, you know, as you are aware, I just recently was asked about those for the current news, and uh, I think that it's uh, it's important to differentiate that it's not a treasure hunt. This isn't an Easter egg hunt. This is looking at objects from 1708 that were collected and going back to Spain, uh, part of their colonization of the Americas, but these things really represent the history of that time period. It's an invaluable time capsule. I could care less about, the, well, I guess I do care about the construction of the ship, but we know what the ship looks like, 1708. It's the cargo on board that really makes the difference as the value of the site and uh, don't sell it. Yeah, so that's really tricky when there's that much money in play. Didn't realize it was so much money. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Do you have any sense for whether or not the Colombian government is going to find that possible? Well, so far, I'm not seeing any evidence uh, that they are selling. Um, so this is the current lawsuits that are going on. Oh. Like, well, then, you can get lawsuits. You can fight your way through it. But no one's going to send a ship into Colombian waters and try and do something there without your permission. Uh -huh. So it's really yours. It's in your waters. So just do what's right. If you do mm -hmm. what's right, you can weather through all the rest of it. So we'll see. It's uh, They haven't started the recovery. Uh, I think there's a push because the current president is uh, – got like most uh, presidents, they've got a term limit coming up and they'd like to see it get pushed ahead now is the reason it's hit the news again. They've talked to their minister of culture and said, let's get going, let's get started. So we'll see. It's about 700 feet of water. It's going to take some expensive equipment. Uh, I told them the same thing. Find a, a company, work with them. Just don't let them sell the artifacts. Now, I've been involved in a lot of this, you know, back in my early career, uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, we worked in the state of Florida in 1988, established an underwater preserve on a 1733 Spanish galleon, one of 12 ships of the Gold Coast of Florida uh, hit in a hurricane. And the treasure hunters in the 60s and 70s were uh, legally making money, splitting 75-25%. Uh, and yet we took the one site that had been 
totally impacted by treasure hunters, had to put cannons back on and an anchor on it, underwater plaques, mooring systems. But now we have in 18 feet of water off of Isla Mirada, Florida, the San Pedro Underwater Archaeological Preserve, where you could go next week and go snorkeling or scuba diving on a Spanish galleon. Uh, that same approach I've used in uh, Dominican Republic, I think the most noted would be the uh, Captain Kidd shipwreck, an Armenian-owned vessel, went down in 1699. Uh, it was captured off the coast of India. It was built in Surat, India, ended up in the Caribbean. Captain Kidd was loaded with uh, precious cargoes. He attempted to uh, leave it behind and thought he was coming back and went with a smaller vessel, probably most of the real treasure, if you want to call it treasure, uh, to New York, turned himself in because he's been accused of piracy. And ultimately, the ship was scuttled. It was set afire. Uh, and then it was found uh, by a local that asked the government about uh, getting some cannons. I looked at the site and said, you know, I think that's what the treasure hunters are looking for. Their permits ran out. Uh, we told the government, Dominican Republic, Ministry of Culture, you can give it back to them. Uh, it's not the first time we've worked after they go in and take everything up. In your case, split it 50-50. Or let's just make it into a park. And so we proved it was a Cana merchant and we made it into a park. So even there, you can go snorkeling on a uh, a site that's a 16th century pirate ship, the only academically studied pirate ship in the Caribbean. So those are the kind of things that I put forth on these concepts in, even on Columbia. Uh, but we in the U.S. have treasure hunting laws. Uh, we managed to put a lot of those out of business. 1988, uh, the Abandoned Shipwreck Act, which I was on, talked about federal and state ownership and pretty much clarified that the, the state or the federal government owns these shipwrecks, except for grandfathered ones. Uh, Dominican Republic, they're still splitting 50-50, but the, we've managed to stop them now uh, by making parks and preserves on these sites. So uh, we got two of them that are treasure hunting sites as an alternative. Then you move to Columbia and they've got to make some decisions themselves there. It makes me think it's almost a blessing that it was so deep, that the San Jose was so deep, so that it did stay preserved until now. I, I don't know what you think about that. Well, there's no question we're finding more and more deep wrecks. Uh, uh -huh. you know, scuba divers, uh, since the, as I said, the mid-60s, it's a growing sport and a growing scientific community and growing salvage, uh, but we're limited to the, you know, the upper skin uh, mm -hmm. dive safely, maybe 132 feet, a little more extreme down to 250, 280. But by 300 feet, that's as far as you're going to go on self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, scuba. Uh, below that, we're talking ROVs. We're also talking tech divers can go maybe another couple hundred feet. But when you get to the San Jose, um, it's not as bad as the Titanic in 12,500 feet of water. Oh, wow. Uh, but I've been asked, can they recover? Well, they brought up a large section of the Titanic. Uh -huh. uh, it's on exhibit in America now. Uh, I was opposed, as most of my archaeological uh, colleagues were. Uh, you may not be aware, but the Titanic, obviously, is the most well-known, probably shipwreck that we have, is uh, 12,500 feet down. Uh, when it was discovered by Dr. Ballard, uh, Ronald Reagan signed it off as a memorial site. Uh, the same as the Arizona. So you can't go to Hawaii and go diving and looking on the Arizona uh, from Pearl Harbor. Well, international waters, Reagan's, uh, it didn't work. Yeah. So the astute attorneys took it all the way to the Supreme Court in America. And the end result is they 
have the objects that are theirs and are now exhibiting them. Uh, Las Vegas is one of the exhibit sites. So, you know, that's the, the Titanic. I like to tell my students, would you like to see that your great grandmother's gold rim glasses were brought up by a treasure hunting group and they're, even if they're not going to sell it, it's on exhibit in Las Vegas. Uh, that just seems a little bit appalling to me. Yeah. There's something a little ghoulish about that really. Yeah, there is in more modern times. And, uh, you know, we go up to the great lakes, uh, another shipwreck you, everyone hears of is Edmund Fitzgerald, but. I've been many a time with the state of former he's retired now state archaeologist from Michigan, who was so upset about the fact that the Edmonds Fitzgerald, you know, went down in 1975. It's not historic yet. It doesn't turn historic till it turns 50 years old. And yet Lightfoot song made it so popular. But then people are going out with ROVs, remote-operated vehicles, and camera systems and taking photos that they had to make a law in the state of Michigan that it's illegal to photograph uh, human remains. Oh. And, you know, I mean, how absurd is it that you think yeah. people are going to take the human remains and bring them up and show them at a, uh, a dive club program? So, uh, you know, that's kind of where we are, and I think that makes sense to people as far as trying to protect these resources and also for public interest. Right. Sort of an extreme example that gets people thinking in, in that direction. But yeah, definitely some major forces in play here. We're always so intrigued by this idea of shipwrecks and treasure and, um, you know, books and movies and so forth. Um, so you've started to talk about this a little bit, the, the ethics and the ownership of underwater treasure. And I was especially interested in laws because a lot of these things are sort of between countries or in international waters. Can you give us a little mini lesson on how that all works? Yeah, I certainly can. Uh, so think of scuba coming worldwide, but in the United States in the uh, uh, early 1950s, invented by Cousteau and occupied France, 1943. So we have modern day scuba. And with the advent of modern day scuba, uh, lots of people diving for sport, lots of people then using it even for, you know, biology studies and so on for science. But as it grew, there were lots of sites that were being discovered, and particularly uh, the Florida Keys, that were treasure ships. I mean, they were carrying uh, precious cargo. So the state of Florida in 1967 made a law, the uh, law of salvage. So they would say, if you applied and got permission, we would split artifacts with you at 25% uh, to the state and 75% to the private company. And there's a series of people, I mean, Art McKee, Mel Fisher, and others that really uh, brought this to the public. And the public's excited about these things, but yet this private public ownership can be somewhat problematic. Mm -hmm. This went on until uh, they found, Mel Fisher found the Atosha. Again, archaeologists would like to call it the uh, Atrocia. Uh, this shipwreck off of Key West, Florida, became very famous with Mel Fisher's discovery of it. 60 feet long of stacked silver bars, 70 pounds a piece. Oh, my gosh. Gold and silver. There's a wonderful exhibit in Key West, Florida, the Mel Fisher Historical Society, and lots of good have come out of it and lots of tourism. But yet their attorney took it to the Supreme Court in 1984 and they said, look, this is really not a treasure salvage. This is a, this is an abandoned ship, the law of finders. Uh, there's no captain, uh, no concern for history of time, period. 
there's no one claiming this ship. We found it. It's ours. Find your keepers. It's in the open ocean. It's our ship. And they literally were able to keep that ship 100% as private ownership. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, the uh, result of that was 1988, the Abandoned Shipwreck Act that uh, was uh, put together the Department of Commerce, Department of Interior. Again, I got lucky to be on the working committee for that. And we talked about, you know, what are we going to do? And the ultimate outcome was that the state and federal uh, waters would be owned underwater cultural resources by the state or federal agency, that anything older than 50 years would be considered historic. Uh, anything that was historic could be determined to be significant by national register criteria, uh, and that uh, there should be management, there should be parks and preserves established, and there should be uh, a public component to this that doesn't keep them off the sites, but doesn't allow private uh, salvage of these sites or looting. And that's where the laws went in America, which put most of the treasure hunters in the U.S. that weren't grandfathered out of business. I see. But where do they go? Well, a lot of them went to Dominican Republic. I see. And with that in mind, we've been working there in 92 on trying to help that government change their rules and regulations. Uh, and they were splitting 50-50. But we're trying to also show that, uh, I like to say, you can only sell it once. Yeah. We can sell history forever. So. Now, uh, that's kind of your highlight of your laws. I won't quiz you on that, but uh, uh, that's the way it's evolved in my career and in involvement with this. Yeah, so interesting to think that there are these uh, for-profit treasure companies kind of scouring the world ahead of the laws to go someplace, go there quick before they... You know, you can imagine the common, and, and let, let me tell you that I happen to have several treasure hunting people that I deal with, I consider friends. Mm -hmm. I have a lot more that don't like me, uh, but it's a legitimate business they're putting together. And there's an argument that if we don't go and work on this, it will just deteriorate. Well, we've kind of proven that to be wrong. There's lots of evidence of ships that are not deteriorated. Uh, they become somewhat of an equilibrium in the environment. Oh. Uh, but you, you can understand that if there's private money going in, people want to see investment and private money coming back. And yeah. I'd like to say that's great. Let's do it in museum exhibits. Let's do it in television program programs, uh, but let's not do it in selling. Uh, you shouldn't be selling these Ming Dynasty cups from 700 feet of water in uh, Colombia to try and finance the operation. Mm -hmm. So that's really the ethical side of it. Uh, you can have legal and you can have ethical, but the really the line is drawn at selling. I see. I also have treasure hunting friends. Uh, the the Widda is a fine example off of Massachusetts. You know, this is a pirate ship that's been brought up by a private individual, Barry Clifford. And uh, I've had many a conversation with Barry who, you know, says, look, I, I've never sold a thing. Hmm. And I, that's true. But the problem is, you know, he's an explorer and we're both members of the Explorers Club and we talk about these things. But, you know, I tell Barry that when you, you pass, you die, mm. your kids might not have the same opinion. And then they sell these objects. And so you end up being a treasure hunter after all. Uh, so it really, you know, the solution there in my mind, and I tried to work towards this, it has not succeeded yet, uh, was to look at having the state own these objects, but yet have rights to exhibit those objects. And that's what I told Columbia. You know, you can loan them to Spain. Mm -hmm. You can still own them, but you can put a hundred year loan to go to Spain and let money be made and generate some funds and get a percent back to yourself. Mm -hmm. So in today's world, the business of uh, museum exhibits and shipwrecks 
should be such that there's ways to figure out how to finance things without having to sell those objects to private collectors to put on their mantle on their fireplace at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, I mean, that's the image, right? Is some rich person that displays something in their home and that's like, wow, how cool am I? I have this thing. But of course, it is depriving the public of being able to see it. I really like your idea, too, about what happens in one generation isn't necessarily what's going to happen in the next generation. And so that that's really a, a potential pitfall with private ownership is that we are mortal. And so something that we try and do in our lifetime might not, not persist. All kinds of different issues that you're having to uh, deal with. Well, you know, one of our issues now, too, if I can interject on that, is uh, we, we are creating shipwreck parks or preserves, and we're calling them uh, a phrase that I've coined really from a 1956 Frenchman, Philippe Dion, talked about the sea, Mediterranean, being a museum awaiting its visitors. Mm. That struck me as a young kid reading the English translation of the French book. Uh, and I've held that thought all the way through is, yeah, they, they really are. I mean, you got coral reefs, but people want to see shipwrecks. And if you can take a shipwreck and add coral to it, you've really got something <laughs> uh, of interest. So we are establishing, starting 1988, uh, open 89, the San Pedro, as an artificial reef and a, uh, a living museum. So that oh. was our first concept in the state of Florida. Now they're calling their multiple ships living museums. And if they're buoyed and marked and interpreted and managed, they're living museums. Uh, we've done the same process now in uh, Dominican Republic. We've established five shipwreck living museums in the Dominican Republic. Two of them are treasure hunting sites. Uh, and it's, uh, it's important that this alternative is to let people go and snorkel and dive and see it, mm -hmm. but not touch it. You know, we mm -hmm. like to say, uh, take only photos and leave only bubbles. Uh -huh. uh, that's our model. We like to put out there. We put it on the plaque underwater to interpret the site. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mexico, uh, yesterday, uh, inaugurated one of their sites, a, a submarine, the H1 submarine. So the first living museum in Mexico, uh, we were involved with one of our alumni, on this work, and this is off the coast of uh, Baja, California, and about 50 feet of water. But it's a World War One submarine that sank after the war. You know, loss of life, the captain and four uh, sailors. But it's there, and now it's a living museum in Mexico. So this idea that these sites are actually part of the environment spins out of the Abandoned Shipwreck Act and the law. Uh, that they should be recognized, not in isolation, but again, as part of that uh, ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Then you take the maritime landscape, what's around it, what ports and cities and uh, activities are going on. So this this just keeps working, spinning its way up. Uh, in the case of Indiana, uh, again, we're nature preserves, but our statute for nature preserves include calling our 296 terrestrial living museums. That was in the statute before we got involved. So it's a natural for us to call the living museums nature of shipwreck nature preserves. So I want to include the fact that uh, in my career, I've seen a lot of changes, not only from the protection of the cultural resources underwater, but also the biological resources. And uh, anyone that's paying attention at all knows that we uh, have a tremendous die off of our coral coverage. Uh, we were all shocked that last summer, uh, Florida Keys, the water temperature was in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. In water. Wow. That's just unheard of. So tremendous coral bleaching. Uh, we hope not 
all die off, but they were talking that, uh, you know, maybe as much as 98% of the corals were impacted. Wow. We'll see as the weather changes, whether the algae, the zooxanthellae can come back and these corals can survive. But uh, boy, uh, I've seen a lot of change in my diving career and uh, a lot of shipwrecks impacted, a lot of corals impacted. And kind of my mission at the university is to get people thinking about how we can make these sustainable to protect them for future generations. Yeah. And, you know, documenting that, observing that, measuring all that, you know, clearly very important since that's not something that we see on a daily basis, right? It's just people, specialized experts will be observing that. Well, it's the 21st century. And I really don't believe that you're going to get four of your best friends together and go try and find a shipwreck and, uh, and loot it. Whereas in the 1960s and 70s, we, you know, that's what we kind of did. Mm -hmm. So the times have changed it's, again, 21st century. So now we need to look at these as finite resources, non-renewable resources and recognize their historic significance, not just the cargo on board. Uh, they're not treasure sites. They are uh, underwater cultural resources. Uh, they should be protected. They should be for the public. Uh, so even the public shouldn't destroy them and they should be recognized as part of the environment and that the, uh, Anywhere you have a shipwreck, you're going to have what we call uh, fish aggregating devices, fads. A shipwreck is a fad. You go to the shipwreck, that's where all the fish are. Uh, you want to know where a shipwreck is? You talk to the fishermen. They go, well, right over here, there's something going on over here. Uh, so there's no question that these things are part of the environment, an important habitat for uh, our marine environment, everything from the fishes to the invertebrates and so on. Interesting, right? Yeah, provide a new kind of home to, to to somebody somebody different. Oh, that's funny. Well, let's talk about the Titanic because that's, of course, something that goes comes into people's minds right away. Always huge fascination with the Titanic. And so, tell me what exploration has been done there and how you feel about future investigation. Well, the first thing I like to do is talk to the Titanic. Have you been to the Titanic yourself? No. Well, no, neither have I. But do you recognize the value of the Titanic? Well, based on what you've just been educating me in the last 30 minutes, yeah. Okay, well, what I'm saying is I use this as an example saying I've never been to the Titanic, you've never been to the Titanic, but we can appreciate the Titanic uh, for its historic event and the movies afterwards and the articles and all the things, now exhibits, but yet you don't have to go there to appreciate it. Uh-huh. You know, Ballard again uh, discovered it and did not want to give the coordinates on it. The U.S. indicated it would be a memorial site, so it would be respected as a grave site. Uh, this didn't hold up in international law. So we do have exhibits. There has been some salvage, uh, some attempts still to do that, but the ethics of it seems very difficult to justify. So you've got this ship in 12,500 feet of water. You're down there several miles underwater. It takes a lot of technology to get to it. Temptation is to bring things up. Uh, but we'd like to start thinking along the international law, United Nations or UNESCO put together what's called the Underwater Cultural Heritage uh, Convention. And they are looking at the first option is in situ preservation. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess I don't have a problem with people looking at videos of uh, see the Titanic, uh, you know, visitation there. But of course, as you know, the submersible that blew up imploded. Uh, I gave some expert testimony on that. You know, this was a, a terrible event, but it was also terrible in that they were charging money, quarter of a million dollars for 
two passengers, a father and a son to go underwater. You know, I'm sure they sign release forms, but it, you know, to take experimental uh, equipment down to those kind of depths and take public down there, it's one thing to have video of it, but to take people down and then to have them die due to lack of proper uh uh, either design and or maintenance. Uh, and we could argue that point, but that's what the courts are doing. Uh, you know, that's a terrible thing. Yeah. So I'm okay with visiting inner space. I'm okay with visiting outer space. Uh, where I draw the line is the public paying money to go there uh, and risking their lives in on technology that still is not fully vetted. There are, It's difficult to even say what is safe down there. Yeah. It's a new horizon to go to those kind of depths. Uh, so I think the Titanic should be uh, documented. I think it should be photographed. I think it should be filmed. I think they should leave the objects there. They've got some up already. There's no new things we're going to find out about the Titanic. Uh, in my mind, as far as construction and building, we know that. Mm. And then now we're down to personal effects. I don't want your great-grandmother's gold rim glasses on display. You shouldn't either. Uh, so I, I just feel like as a memorial site, I don't want to go to the Arizona and bring out a sailor with his uniform uh, and think that that's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my opinion on it. I think others kind of share that. And yet free American or free international enterprise is saying, no, oh, no, it's there. We can go get it. We can make money on it. Well, let's figure out how to make money without risking people's lives and unnecessarily. And let's figure out how to make money without bringing up artifacts to go into museum exhibits. And, and that, I mean, that's just, that's where I am. Yeah. It's really interesting in this day and age of being able to recreate things so well that, that, that that's not the first thing that people think about. Right. I mean, cause you could do all kinds of things once you have that information. I mean, you could recreate a whole scene. That, uh, well, I mean, I guess they did that in the Titanic movie, but a little creativity, it seems to me, could go a long way here. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I think uh, safe visitation, sure. Collecting, no. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the Titanic just has a lot of interest because of all the publicity over the years. It's just so well known. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's where uh, ships like the Colombian vessel, the San Jose, uh, doesn't have anyone knows what we're speaking of until you mentioned $20 billion. Yeah, in right. <laughs> then you get to your attention again. Uh, you know, I have, I teach my students and I'm a little shocked just last week. I tried it again. I was talking about Marine conservations, uh, national Marine sanctuary is the first national Marine sanctuary established. We now have 13, uh, under the department of commerce. And the first one was on a site called the monitor. And I asked my students, what can you tell me about the monitor? And I got a lot of blank stares back at me. And I'm going, the monitor in the Merrimack, the monitor in engagement in the Civil War, the monitor is the first ironclad vessel utilized in warfare. And then they go, oh, oh, that monitor. Oh, yeah, I guess I know what you're talking about. But, you know, I, I, I kind of risk my case. And if you don't know about it and promote the history of it and tell people, then they, it's just a big blank. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, the monitor, they brought up the turret, the cannon is a wonderful exhibit now available, uh, a first-class 21st century exhibit you can go to. So I'm hoping more people will become aware of the importance of a site like that and the fact that it is a national marine sanctuary off North Carolina. There's lots of examples of people that uh, uh, have lost their lives on shipwrecks, too. And uh, uh, I just don't think they all have to be memorial sites, but... 
I guess I would take you to one of my excursions a few years ago to Micronesia, which was Truck Lagoon at the time. And it's the site of the Japanese fleet, equivalent of our Pearl Harbor, where 60 ships were sunk in World War II, uh, mostly merchant ships that were sunk there. Uh, the Japanese had uh, pretty much enslaved the, the local inhabitants of the area after the Germans had done so, too, uh, after World War I. So they had no love lost for their occupiers. Uh, but you go there and, uh, you know, I traveled there and people were diving down inside the ships and there were Japanese sailors there and they're bringing skulls out and setting them up ah. and photographing them. And uh, I happened to come back and my aunt, uh, Taiko, married my uncle, military, uh, she was in Japan during World War II. Her brother was a kamikaze pilot, of course, died in the war. And I'm asking Tycho, what do you think about, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't take any pictures of bodies, but what do you think about that? If we'd lost the war, we might be talking about the sailors in the Arizona doing that. Right. So, uh, you know, with that in mind, I, I just think we need to really have a not only a U.S., but an international uh, view of what these submerged cultural resources mean, underwater cultural heritage, and how we can protect them, and what are the best rules and ways to do this. Uh, but a lot of it's international waters, and uh, mm -hmm. it can be usurped. I didn't realize that the Titanic was so deep. That's just a it's completely different uh, situation than these other ones that you're talking about. You know, to go back to your idea about charging the public, especially people who don't have the wherewithal to judge the safety of the equipment that they're going into there. Yeah, there, it does feel like something very questionable about that. Well, the the Titan submersible uh, that went, you know, imploded with two paying people on board. You know, I'm sure they had faith because the designer was on board with them. All right, but certain amount of implicit uh, consent and belief that I, you know, this must be safe, but it wasn't. Didn't work out. But what do you do about it? How do you regulate this? So these are the kind of things I've been asked about, and others have been asked about. And I'm not saying we shouldn't go to the Titanic. I'm not saying that uh, the public shouldn't go to the Titanic, but I am saying there needs to be something that would help regulate this. And of course, no taking of anything. Photos only. Say take only photos. Leave only bubbles. Uh, in this case, their bubbles are inside their, their submersible, so there are no bubbles. But this is how they should regulate it. And then, like anything else, if there's an accident, well, then there's repercussions. And uh, I don't know how to solve all that, but I'm not saying stop. I'm just saying let's really think about it and uh, let's talk about international waters, what, what can be done. Because uh, that's the problem. You can make a rule here in America. And then uh, the French send a submarine down, our submersible down. Ballard found it with U.S. backing, uh, and the Russians and, uh, got with the French and went out and started salvaging. No. So uh, international waters is a difficult place. Well, I mean, it, I'm, of course, horrified that that thing happened, but it, it is a really powerful lesson, right? So I, I do think that will make us more cautious now as we – and not just underwater, but outer space, you know, other places that we want to venture. W wonderful, right? Wonderful that we're such an exploratory uh, species. Animals like to go to different places. But but believing that something is safe is not the same as it actually being safe. Correct. You know, I, say I'm an explorer. I'm a member of the Explorers Club. Uh, 
I like to think my next exploration is probably the most exciting one I've ever done uh, versus the last 40 years of exploring. But there's certainly lots of discoveries and lots of things underwater that I've seen. But I've also seen the attrition of these objects and I've seen the destruction. And I've seen the death of the corals. And, uh, you know, in the 1980s, our Elkhorn, uh, Acropora palmatas died out throughout the Caribbean. And yet they were vast stands of them before. Uh, the sea urchins died out. Uh, now we've got this heavy temperatures going on, as I said, in the Florida Keys, and lots of coral cover is no question has died already and maybe vastly more. Uh, you know, 60% coral coverage has died absolutely uh, over the last few years. And now there's estimates of maybe as much as 98%. I hope that's not true. That's just people saying that from this last uh, uh, climate impact. So today we need to protect these underwater resources. We need to understand how to uh, utilize them sustainably is what my mission is. Uh, I like the idea of making living museums, parks and preserves that people can go to. We've also looked at, uh, we've got a slaver in Dominican Republic that we wanna make into a living museum, but designate as a memorial site. So you don't get the chance to go diving there. Just recognize that this is a site that went down with multiple numbers of slaves on board that died during the wrecking process. Uh, so, you know, this is kind of the same thing as the Arizona. Uh, we're not going to go scuba diving uh, as tourism on, on the site like that. Mm-hmm. Well, to switch gears uh, on you here a little bit. So obviously you love diving and you teach diving. And so tell us what characteristics you think make a good diver. Well, um, I'd like to think that a good diver, I guess we can look at it two ways. Uh, one is how are you good in the water as far as your skill set, your buoyancy, uh, not disturbing the bottom is one thing. And also a good diver is having the right ethics that I've been talking about is what kind of activities you're going to do underwater. Uh, you know, I live here in Indiana and we go out to our local caves like Buckner's Cave nearby. <laughs> and there's all this graffiti and drawing all over the walls. And it's just been heavily impacted by people visiting. My idea is if you were a student up to go caving, why would you go underground and carve your name on a rock? Uh, I go to Dominican Republic and their caves are virtually pristine. And I hope they stay that way. Oh, wow. So I look at the same view as a good diver. Uh, what's your etiquette? Are you underwater and impacting, uh, impacting the bottom, kicking with your fins? Uh, you're overly weighted. Uh, you're impacting these really fragile corals. Uh, in the Florida Keys, we used to have divers wear gloves to protect your hands. Well, you put a pair of gloves on a diver back in the 70s, and what do they do? They touch stuff. Mm. So we took away the gloves, and it was then mandated that no to the charter operators because they were touching corals, which basically can kill the coral upon impact with your hands rubbing uh, the polyps. So that was taken away. So uh, the other side of this on diving is, I guess, I'm an academic. Uh, I teach scientific diving. I teach underwater archaeology. Uh, we do the research, the parks and preserves. But I like to tell our students that uh, I can take a really smart student that happens to maybe like the water and turn you into a safe, good diver that can do good work underwater. What I can't necessarily do is take a good diver that has no academic background and turn them into a smart student that's going to do something impactful. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind at the university, I have the advantage that I'm always looking for a few good, smart students. And I always like to kid my students back. I remember 10 years ago when I had good students, I wish I had some now, uh, you know, and they all perk up and say, you know, I think I'm trying <laughs> to be a good job. 
They take the bait. <laughs> so they take, there's no question. And uh, we give them the Kool-Aid and they drink it. Uh, and they do that because they know that they are smart, they're inquisitive, and they're being learned to dive safely for themselves, safe for their buddy, and then safe for the environment. Now, what can you do? Mm-hmm. And now that you are able to do some, let's talk about measuring uh, parts of a shipwreck or corals. Let's use the new technology of we do a lot of photogrammetric modeling where we'll take 2000 images of a, a shipwreck site or a coral site and stitch those all together in the computer, maybe rendering for 40 to 60 hours to make one big composite JPEG. Wow. But now you can look at the biology on the site. Uh, we can monitor it over time. And this now, uh, you know, 2015, we were one of the first universities using photogrammetric modeling. Mm-hmm. We brought in a Dr. Bernie Fisher here. I distinctly remember it. Uh, one of my colleagues, the president at the time, President McRobbie, said, we got to get this guy. He's doing Rome with drones and reconstructing. And we, you know, and so our our IT information technology, we brought him in. So I went to meet with him with my smart grad student. And I said, you know, Bernie, this is exciting your drone work we'd like to use it underwater and he goes hmm, well i don't think there's any underwater drones uh i don't know i i hadn't really thought about that and i said well why don't we make our divers be the drones and they mm. can just flip around with the camera and he goes mm-hmm. oh you know i bet that would work <laughs> sure enough, there we go and uh, we applied the technology in, in 2015 now everybody's doing it uh, but we we're among the earliest and taught programs in California and nationally sanctuaries and how to do this because now our students can do volumes. They can take a coral head and look at it in the computer and rotate it, look at it, put a bottom on it and do volumetric studies. Uh, there's damage grounding. We work with the nationally sanctuaries grounding program that there's a scour mark. You can literally have a real number of how much has been dug out by using the oh. computers. Um, so I think the future for all of us is the information technology mm-hmm. and the application to that to try and protect these resources and study these resources. And I go back uh, to uh, Exxon Valdez, uh, the oil spill that you yes. probably remember and I remember. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The National Park Service director, uh, Jim Reidenhauer, was a former Indiana DNR director. And after that, he came back and was teaching at IU. And I was oh, working I with him on his graduate course. And he says, you know, Charlie, the problem with that Exxon Valdez is we didn't know what we lost because we didn't know what we had. Oh. And that really struck me. And mm-hmm. I spent most of my career trying to say, let's find out what we have right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we can talk about in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I've got some sites I've been monitoring for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you can talk about change over time. Mm-hmm. I think those are the kinds of things in the future we're looking for in those so-called good divers. Mm-hmm. I like to tell my students the same thing. We've got projects next uh, summer, like we do every year. One is in the Caribbean, Dominican Republic, creating more parks and preserves and trying to keep treasure hunters from uh, working on shipwrecks anymore, showing the government there's other value. Then we have a second one in the Florida Keys, which is working on our underwater parks and preserves with the state and the national sanctuaries we've been doing for over 30 years. And then the last one now is our shipwrecks of Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want the students to have the skill set to go there and do something meaningful. That's what I think is a good diver. And when they apply and they say, I just love the ocean, and I've always loved the ocean, and my family used to go as a little kid, and I'd like to go to the Florida Keys with you, I tell them, I'll just take your application, tear it up, and throw it away. 
uh, if you want to do that, there's 50 dive stores down there you can go with. Now, if you want to go and do some research, mm-hmm. you want to do a biological and archaeological uh, study, a monitoring, you want to be involved in uh, trying to protect these resources, then we'll take you on an IU field study. So that's kind of differentiating between recreational diving and, and our scientific diving. Mm-hmm. It's just really fascinating, all these different things that you're involved with. Okay, I'm going to ask you my magic wand question. I ask my guests to this occasionally, and and I thought this might be a good question for you. So if you had a magic wand, because so many of these issues are are big and complicated, if you had a magic wand and you could just use your magic wand to change something, public's understanding of or appreciation for or funding for this kind of uh, academic research, what would you use your magic wand for? Well, I don't have a magic wand, I know. Uh, but I often talk among colleagues, say, well, you know, I once in a while, I'll play the lottery. And if I happen to win that lottery, what would I do? Yeah. I would just do what I'm doing right now, but I'd do it better funded and I'd do it on a larger scale. You know, to me, it's uh, we need more academics. We need more resource management people from the state and the federal to protect these resources. I've seen a tremendous amount of destruction since my 1963 dives uh, up through till today. And uh, with that in mind, these resources, again, they're finite. And if we destroy them, they're gone. My students, grandkids, I want them to be able to go to the Florida Keys and see the San Pedro 1733 underwater archeological preserve and hopefully the best condition we can sustain it in. I want them to go on a Caribbean trip to the Dominican Republic and see the 1699 Cata Merchant, an Armenian-owned vessel that Captain Kidd had that was a pirate ship to the Caribbean. And I want them to go to Indiana and go dive on the uh, the Peerless, the current uh, Muskegon. But if we don't try and protect them, they're all going to be gone. Mm-hmm. It's very destructive, people diving underwater and trying to collect things. Uh, that'd be my magic wand act, I guess. Otherwise, I, I don't have a uh, uh, a great wish list other than more awareness about how to the value of these sites and like all things, we need more funding to do the work we're doing. Terribly expensive to go mm-hmm. underwater, terribly expensive to train people with charter boats and compressors and tanks and camera systems and two or three years in there obsolete and you got more camera systems. And it's a continuous battle to uh, be able to scientifically investigate underwater adequately. So on that note, uh, before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to ask my listeners to do or refer them to websites or fundraising, anything like that? Well, uh, I'm not uh, wanting to promote our university more than necessary, but of course, we're always interested in the university perspective. Funding is always a necessary evil. But I think what I'd like to have your listeners, if I haven't conveyed a preservation ethic yet, I guess I haven't done the job today. Uh, I'd like for them just to think about it, uh, everything from the plastics they throw out to the uh, things they might collect to the impact they might have on the, the biology underwater. Uh, you know, our days of collecting and picking up and so on underwater. And uh, I went a few years ago to a plastics conference in Scotland and I gave a talk about Scottish Captain Kid, but I listened to all these talks about the microplastics and all that are in the waters. And I've visited and seen these sites die off. Mm. core reef site. So let's have an awareness. If your people can just do a little bit to help, uh, that's great. Uh, The main thing is don't be part of the problem. Let's try and be part of the solution. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and educating us and taking the time. I really appreciate it, Charlie. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. 
Well, my pleasure. And I, uh, I know that uh, I can talk a long time, so I'm glad that you were willing to listen. And I think that this is uh, important. We get the message out there. So uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.